Namaste and welcome to the Bharat Vartha podcast. In our Long India series, we're speaking to Radhika Gupta, who is the MD and CEO of Edelweiss Mutual Funds. She is India's only woman head of a major asset manager and is a very popular public speaker as well. Uh, LinkedIn recently recognized her as among the top 10 voices on finance and economy in the world. In this conversation, we spoke about why Radhika is optimistic about India this new decade, uh, how India's perception has changed over generations, how the retail investor's confidence has grown tremendously over that time, and finally, what she sees as opportunities uh, for India's youth. This is a fascinating conversation, one that will leave you with a lot of hope and optimism for the country. I hope you like it. Uh, Namaste Radhika, welcome to the Bharat Vartha podcast. Thank you so much. Namaste and uh, thank you very much for having me. I'm actually very excited about this conversation and I love the name of the podcast, by the way. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, we call this the Long India series and, you know, I had a point to bring it up, uh, you know, with you because you're a finance person anyway. So, uh, yeah. So let's start a little bit with your background and, you know, your journey into the investment world. Uh, what got you attracted to this and how has your experience been? Sure. So, and uh, by the way, my Twitter profile these days says long on India and long on mutual funds and long on life. So, <laughs> coincidentally, we're having a conversation about on long, long India. India. I'm also yeah. long mutual funds and life, but that's a separate matter altogether. Yeah. Um, so, I actually come from a house where nobody has been in corporate India. Uh, when my father grew up in the 70s, I think the most prestigious thing to do at that time was join the government. And that's what he did. So he was a foreign service officer. And we should talk about how his perception of India changed over the years. But essentially, uh, kids don't want to do what their parents do, I guess. That was my case. Uh, he would have loved for me to join the government. And I'll talk about that later. Uh, but I uh, decided to go to Wharton. Um, first kid to study abroad um, and went to Wharton on a scholarship, was one of those lucky few who actually got uh, paid by Wharton to come to the school and had a world-class education. Never thought I would join the world of finance, but frankly didn't know anything about it because when you don't grow up with a corporate background, these things don't even cross your mind to be frank. And uh, did uh, you know some time in technology, uh, did some time in consulting and then just joined the world of finance because that's, that's, that's what was like. Um, and I always say this about careers, right? Much of it is an arranged marriage for most of us. Many people discover their passion early in life. I wasn't one of them. Um, I was a good student and, uh, you know, figured my way through. And I've loved this industry. I think the reason I've loved this industry is because it's very fast. Um, there's always something to learn. I mean, every market cycle is something. Um, there are also very, many different facets to this industry. So it's not unidimensional. I mean, in my career, I have done startup finance. I have done large institutions like Edelweiss. Um, I have done global investing. I have done India investing. I have done very complicated institutional kind of products. And I have done very simple retail kind of products. I mean, I have gone from selling uh, mortgage and managing mortgage kind of money for the world selling SIPs with 500 rupees ticket sizes. So you really got the whole range and I think both teach you a lot. I've worked with government, I've worked with uh, private sector. So I think that's what I've loved about uh, the business, that there's so many facets to explore and uh, each day I keep thinking, oh my God, there's so much work to do. And I think if your job can make you feel like that, you're very lucky. 
Yeah. No, I mean, that's absolutely right. I mean, even when you're evaluating, let's say, stocks or whatever, I mean, you you discover something and then it's a rabbit hole, right, that you go on. Um, so, you know, something you mentioned is how the perception of India has changed between generations. Uh, how has that perception of uh, India changed? And particularly because you've also lived abroad. Uh, so you have many different facets to offer on this very uh, question, right? So, uh, yeah, your thoughts on that? So I'll tell you something uh, my father said when he retired and he started in the 70s and he retired uh, in the last decade. And he said, you know, I've had the pleasure of seeing, he was addressing a crowd of diplomats and the Queen of Denmark, etc. I've had the pleasure of seeing India transform over the 50, you know, 40 years that I have served. When he joined in the 70s, and these are stories he tells me, I don't think Indian diplomats commanded a lot of respect because India was not an economic superpower. These were times of the emergency because these were not great times. Um, then the late 80s came and I remember coming back as a child to India in the 90s, early 90s when my father moved back. And you know, we were still carrying packets of Tang in electronics that we bought from Jackson Heights in New York. And we used to have to, have to get the right voltage version for our family back in India. And even when dad used to go back to New York in the early 90s, I was like, dad, get me chocolates, get me books. I mean, you could not get anything. This was a time when a mobile phone could forget it. My grandparents didn't have a mobile phone. If you had to make a call, you had to go to the neighbor's house, who chances are had an STD phone. So it was a very different time. And we moved to Nigeria, I think in the late, in 1995, I remember going to a very rich kind of American school and kids would say that the Indian, I used to be called Apu in school. Now, Apu was this character from The Simpsons, Simpsons. and he was an illegal immigrant who used to work at a mart. Okay, that was the stereotype of the Indian. He was a nerdy, illegal immigrant from Bengal. I hope no Bengali kills me, who used to work as a at a mart. That was the reputation. People used to ask abroad, do you go to school on elephants and do you see snake charmers? Then what happened is, and I'm not kidding, I mean, this is scary. <laughs> and then the IT revolution happened. By the time I went to college um, and I went to Wharton in the early 2000s, the whole tech revolution happened and Pokhran also happened. And I think Pokhran was a very important symbol of the fact that India has some power and we will not take nonsense. In fact, I remember going through a lot of debates on Pokhran with my classmates abroad. So there was an interesting time then. But then by the time that happened, the perception of India gradually started changing. Okay, these are the tech nerds. These are smart people. You know, these are the IIT kids. That's how, oh, you're in computer science. Of course, you're Indian. Of course, you're going to be good at this. So that started changing. And then I think, of course, the whole boom of 2003 to 2007 from a capital markets point of view happened. Um, you know, back in the day, I think there was this whole concept of the brain drain that, you know, you got educated in India and you would go abroad to work and you would escape. And that was the great Indian middle class dream. I think by the last decade, what has happened, and I've seen this with my classmates, people who, like me, went to get educated abroad now want to come back to India. Yeah. And that is a big change from the brain drain. And I actually think the demand to absorb such people is actually less than the supply. So more and more people now think about coming back to India. And I truly think life has come full circle. And I think when my dad retired, 
you know he got a lot of respect from his german and japanese counterparts to talk to them like in equal and i think in that sense his career is a story of the economic rise of india right yeah that's uh, fascinating i mean you've encapsulated you know how the perception has changed over the years uh, between generations uh, as we enter this new decade of 2020s there are so many possibilities ahead of us uh, speaking from your perspective what are you particularly optimistic about i am very firstly i'm a very optimistic person and i think my optimism is reflected in the fact that 10 years ago i chose to move to india and leave the us uh, you know at a time when layoffs were happening but one had kept one's job and i think over the last decade and then i get into specifics people keep asking you you know do you regret the move do you wish you had gone back to the us and i would say i have never once regretted the move i think what makes me optimistic for my profession and most professions about india is the size of opportunity so i come from financial services in the us and i love the us market you are solving very complex third order problems because all the basics have been solved in the us right in india you are not solving third order problems you are not doing the cutting edge stuff i'm not going to say that for the day you're solving simple things but you're doing it at mass scale yeah. so for a young person the opportunity to have impact and to me success is impact the opportunity to have impact at scale is incredible so in my career only uh, you know when i did an issue like bharat bond with government of india i got messages from people saying that because of this i had made my first pocket money investment i would never be able to do things like that in the us so i think the ability to solve first order problems at scale you're still living in a country where the prime minister goes and tells people sir can you open a bank account that would never happen in the us um in my own industry uh, the quote you a statistic mutual fund penetration at the individual level is probably 5 6% the world average is 40% so i keep saying even if we are to get to parity with the rest of the world we have 4 se 40 ka journey hamare saath hai aur hame karna hai so that's the size of opportunity i think the second thing that makes me optimistic over the last 5 7 years is i think india's approach to and i'm a diplomat's daughter India's approach to finding its place in the world has changed and I was very enthused by this budget I was less enthused by the measures and I was more enthused by the belief that India is unique India is different India has its own problems and India is going to solve them its own way so India is going to do what is right for India rather than what world bank or imf or some credit rating agency tells us we are going to do what's right for our people our way and we are going to tell our own narrative um and i think we are shaping that narrative by the way i also think on a separate note the whole vaccine diplomacy being a diplomat's daughter is yeah. an incredible way to communicate your soft power um at a time when some other countries have done what they have done for a country like india to be exporting without making a song and dance of it vaccines to more than 100 countries tells you the economic strength and the scientific strength of india so i think india has found its confidence and mojo over the last 5 10 years and hopefully that translates into execution right yeah so you, you know you touched upon multiple different axes of growth and optimism uh, let's talk about the markets because you know that's where you operate and you are most passionate about as well right so we had record number of uh, investors retail investors entering the market last year um you know does it reflect that renewed confidence in india in your opinion 
so there is definitely a generation of retail investors and more millennial investors that have gotten more and more aspirational i think my father's generation was a post office generation they were an fd generation dakkhane ki generation jise hum kehte hain um my generation started experimenting with money i think the youth and the younger investor of today and one meets so many investors one is a lot more aware and secondly is aspirational both about his career and about his money so you see people asking questions you see people challenging norms and they are not by the way just trying to do simple equity mutual funds for instance we run some of the more exotic kind of products like us technology funds and china funds etc these are people who are looking to even do things like investing abroad so they are financially savvy and they want to do things with their money and i think the participation in markets is a reflection of it they are also getting more mature so this is an interesting statistic in march when markets fell and everyone said retail would run away retail investors actually put in money into the markets fii is ran away from the markets now when markets have risen perhaps retail investors are taking back a little bit of money so it's yeah. not only a retail investor is getting interested he's also getting smarter yeah no that's absolutely true i think the outflows uh, consistently have been like uh, record numbers right in terms of people withdrawing money from the equity mutual funds and so on i think uh, you know you briefly said that the budget uh, uh, actually you've said uh, before that the budget was a thoughtful one for extraordinary times right uh, and i think you know others uh, uh, as well have said that it signals uh, you know much more than what uh, you know people are reading into it and so on uh, do you want to elaborate a little bit on that sure so i as i said i think the first element and i look at signaling in these things as i said the first element is one india's different indian answers to indian problems and I, i genuinely believe you can't compare a country with our stage of per capita income and our population to the us market even in the context of financial markets by the way i always say comparisons made between india and us financial markets and we can talk about that are absolutely ludicrous these are completely different markets and that's what i've experienced in my own career the second thing that i liked is we prioritized growth and you know i think india you talked about this in the context of markets i think we are a growth oriented country it's almost like growth is a drug it's growth for the economy it's gdp growth it's career growth if people do it salary growth we want growth because and by the way when foreign investors look at india they look at us for growth you don't come to india for stability you come to india for growth we are like a teenager yeah. we are volatile we are up and down but we grow fast and i think this budget prioritizes growth because in india i genuinely believe growth will lift everyone up if you really have to lift people up the answer is going to come from growth and you know you can make two choices you can make a choice in the budget to spend money on revenue uh, revenue expenditure and do subsidies etc which is what we've been doing for the longest time to keep people happy or you can make a choice to invest in the future you can make a choice to invest in your infrastructure you can make a choice to invest in the future i think for once we said listen i am going to invest in the future even if it is the difficult option and i think the third thing that the budget got right is everyone expected big taxes covid cesses the standard solutions yeah. is it we're not going to do that we are going to take unproductive assets that the government has whether it is state owned companies whether it is land assets 
and try and monetize them. So we are going to push ourselves again on the harder answer. We are not going to put more of a tax burden on the middle class Indian. I already believe, by the way, that the salaried individual in this country is way overtaxed and way over. There was a very nice line in the budget that said, I want to collect more taxes, but it's not by increasing the tax rate. It's by increasing the tax net. And it's very important because in this country, I don't believe in enough people pay tax. I mean, I'm a salaried professional and look at the lifestyle of most of my friends in business who are far richer than me. I mean, see the cars they drive and see what I drive. They pay far less tax than me and they know that. Right. Yeah. No, uh, I think it was a shift from wealth redistribution to wealth creation, which is again, which is why I mean, a lot of people are very positive about it. Uh, in terms of the economy itself, I mean, do you think we have kind of bottomed out and like, you know, what do you see as short to midterm uh, growth drivers uh, for India at this point of time? So I think pre-budget, we were starting to come back, uh, but it was a precarious recovery. So the organized sector was starting to come back. In fact, corporate results have been fantastic across the board. Uh, the first time they were good in quarter two, it was a lot of cost cutting. But the second time you actually see top line numbers, yeah. I think largely the economy has come back. The unorganized sector has not come back. I think the budget addresses some of that. But really, I think, you know, the core of India, which is MSME and the unorganized sector has to come back. So it's a precarious recovery. But I think the budget hopefully gives more legs to that recovery. So I think that's where we are. As I said, I think corporate earnings seem to be uh, in very good shape. One area of concern and one place that India has been lucky so far, and I hope we continue to remain lucky, is that we have not had a second wave of COVID. Um, yeah. For other economies, once you have opened the economy uh, after the lockdown, COVID has significantly worsened. In India, that has not happened, although I've heard some spikes in Maharashtra. If COVID continues the way it is, I think you will see things coming back. I was talking to uh, even some of the most COVID-sensitive sectors. Hospitality is back in a large way. Hotels, at least uh, tourism is back. Even business travel, domestic airlines are at 70 to 80%. Maybe entertainment is one sector that's suffering. So I think even some of your most volatile sectors are starting to come back. And philosophically, I would say, I don't like to bet against the Indian entrepreneur. The Indian entrepreneur has usually found a way. Right. Yeah. So, you know, uh, coming back to retail investors as such, right? So finance and investing can seem, you know, very daunting to the average person, right? Uh, are there any, you know, what would you say are simple ways for people to understand some fundamental concepts so they can, you know, participate more in these markets? I think it's very important and unfortunately we are not the most financially educated market. Yeah. I think it's very, and you know, what happens is um, I, I'm on social media and most of the times I was having a conversation with a fairly educated group of investors today and they're like, Radhika, tell me what are the best schemes to invest in? And this is a common question I get. And it is the absolutely worst question to ask once you start to start investing. Um, the first thing to do when you start investing is understand the basics of the investment asset classes. So there is equity, there is debt, and you really have to understand what is equity, what is debt. For instance, if I'm investing in a mutual fund, am I buying a phone? Am I, what am I buying? I am buying stocks of companies. I'm actually not buying stocks. So there's another myth, I'm buying stocks. I'm actually buying part ownership in companies. Now, what kind of companies am I buying? 
how will those company prices move up and down if my if i bought a stock and it was down 20% in a quarter does that mean the company is fundamentally broken what does that mean so understanding the fundamentals of these asset classes debt and equity is the most important thing that you can do and i genuinely believe that people don't take the time to do it why will companies do well when will my portfolio do well when will it not do well i think once you understand this the second step is to really understand yourself right because you're not you know your investment personality roshan can be very different from mine yeah. i am by the way a very conservative investor you may be surprised to know that because of my circumstances i work in financial services i'm married to someone in financial services so our incomes are very volatile and we own a lot of stock of the company uh, you know available wise in this case so that is very very volatile so we are very conservative now you may be a very aggressive investor because of your circumstances so understand that you may have different goals you may have a family to support you may have whatever it is once you get an understanding of yourself and the different investment products you can marry them and become a good investor i think that's the first thing i would tell you right so there are so many more choices right now in terms of uh, financial products itself right i mean in fact you uh, run some of the industries leading etfs and so on uh, what do you see as um, you know how has your experience been in that sense has the retail investor been more open to these kind of instruments uh, of late uh, or i mean they prefer investing directly in equities and uh, you know some of the other older instruments Oh, I think they are very open. In fact, I would veer to the fact that they are getting too open for their own good. Now, I think Russian people are very open to innovation. In fact, they are veering towards the other side of innovation. Actually, the cart has tilted too much. Um, if you look at the history of mutual fund products, and you had two kinds of products. You essentially had debt mutual funds and equity mutual funds that invested in domestic markets, and they were an alternative to doing direct equity yourself so if i didn't want to hold a direct equity portfolio i would do it by other domestic mutual fund group this basket has completely expanded so for instance passive products have come in products like bharat bond for instance that are not actively managed and that are passive so etf products have come in huge amount of adoption i mean bharat bond is a 30000 crore program within one year of launch so i think if people see a product that solves their problems they are quick to pick it up um the other good thing is that the mutual fund platform is a very regulated platform so what that helps in is it gives a retail investor a basic level of confidence that regardless of if i pick one of the 44 amcs you know my money is safe the basics are checked off the basic operation so i think that's one of the things that the mutual fund industry has got it's a very transparent regulated simple and accessible industry okay. now as i said other products are coming into foray we are one of the largest players in mutual funds in india that invest in overseas markets so we have a product that looks at emerging markets or china or us technology or some of these tesla and these kind of companies we've seen huge adoption by retail investors in fact some of our largest retail products tend to be on more exotic international products we hope people are understanding them in coming in but it just gives you a sense of the kind of adoption and openness people have to new ideas and right. you know, i think the investor is more informed in terms of global awareness he knows what products are available he's globally informed and sometimes you know you'll have these investors mm. and they'll tell you radhika uh, you know this cloud computing etf or this biotech etf is manufactured by some company in the us why don't you bring it to india so they're actually coming back to you and writing it uh, to you with suggestions 
they're also yeah. a lot more digitally aware so you get a lot of feedback on your website your digital properties that this is my experience at amazon so they're also pushing us to get better and better right so how do you see the impact of fintechs you know i mean that over the last 10 15 years i mean they've changed completely disrupted the landscape and uh, i feel like you know fintech innovation in india is miles ahead of anywhere else uh, in the world uh, right uh, so how do you see the impact of fintechs oh yeah firstly i believe that fintech and mobile i think i think these are two industries that are just i mean they rock in india i think we set standards in india so i think firstly that i think fintech is doing a lot i think the biggest thing for me personally is that fintech is opening the financial products landscape to bharat so to say and they are doing it without having branch presence in 100 parts of the yeah. country i mean as a younger mutual fund you know if you had to succeed at a, as a mutual fund the old model was radhika please go open 200 branches and have a sales force of 1000 people people like paytm are accessing consumers that even domestic mutual funds with huge branch networks are not doing because they believe every mobile phone is a branch and i think they're really challenging the business model so now i can confidently say i don't need to build a large sales team i don't need to have branch presence but i can really reach out to bharat because the fintechs i think have shown the way fintechs i think are also putting pressure on businesses like ours to upgrade our game on digital and technology because i think the kind of work they've done in terms of user interface user experience you can't just say regulation say this aisa hi hoga you really have to push us we just released a new website and digital property we really and we don't even now we benchmark to fintech so i think mm. that's the other thing that fintechs are doing they're making us accessible they are disrupting the belief that you need branches to succeed and they're pushing us on our own digital experience right uh, so anytime we have a finance person uh, on the podcast i mean uh, you know people the one of the most requested uh, uh, questions is you know uh about cryptocurrency right uh, and it's a pretty interesting <laughs> uh, uh you know invention discovery whatever call call it what you will over the last 15 years or so right and uh, uh, you're seeing that the government is considering a ban on it do you have any thoughts on crypto at all god i get so many questions on crypto i mean i'm sitting again with a large family office and they're like do we do crypto and i don't understand crypto well enough i have tried to understand it i maybe i'm not smart enough to understand it i just want to ask the indian investor a question why would you invest in a product that is not regulated by your government and that has no investor protection right so i may sound like a big crypto bear uh, but i won't do anything where i don't have regulatory and investor protection comfort you know money is hard in india i mean we all work really hard to earn our money we deal with bosses and we deal with work and we deal with commute it should be invested sensibly and i really believe you know 80 to 90% of your money should go into the dal chawal of investments the basics you want to spend 5 to 10% of your time doing all this okay fine everyone needs to keep in life but 90% of your money should be invested responsibly right so the other most requested answer is the i mean question is that you know the markets are at record highs right now right uh, you know how do you see it uh, going forward you know okay so the secret of markets is that unfortunately no one can predict and markets are incredibly volatile it, you know indians are very sentimental people I and mean, this is always if you look at march 2020 when markets fell 30% in a month 
most of us thought the world was going to end. I mean, if you look at the kind of budgeting even I did for my business this year, I mean, we blasted budgets because budgets were so conservative then. Um, and come here and markets are at record high. So I think the first thing you have to say is that you can't predict markets. You can only prepare and make sure your investments are robust for all kinds of markets. Um, not markets. I have to say you have to realize that, you know, these traditional things like Sensex hits 50,000, markets are at all time high, price to earnings ratios. These are very traditional ways and beyond the point, these are all narratives. So I don't buy into them too much. Markets will always be, my age is always at a lifetime high, right? So markets, so I don't buy, or you know, you are always crossing milestones. Who's to say 50, not 55? So, you know, these are nice things to talk about and nice things in the media. I think you have to look at the fundamentals of what are going on. You are living in a world where interest rates are exceptionally low. Um, and all global economies are doing this to support uh, their economies coming back from the COVID period. When interest rates are very low, there is a lot of liquidity in the world and markets do behave very, very differently. So the traditional barometers to measure markets may not be the most applicable. The second thing people say is, oh, companies are doing poorly on the ground, markets are behaving differently. Remember, markets work on expectations. So today's markets work on tomorrow's expectations. Yeah. Expectation is that there will be a recovery. So these are just a couple of things to keep in mind when you think about markets. Right. You know, we've uh, over the last 30 minutes or so, we've discussed plenty of optimistic things, right? I mean, about why India will grow and so on. Um, in your opinion, if what are some threats and what are some challenges that could actually hold us back from this growth? You know, I mean, have you kind of identified those? Like, oh yeah, and uh, there's no shortage of them, right? India is not without its share of problems. I think uh, a couple of things that I would say. Um, one is constant change. I think one thing that has worked for India is a period of political stability uh, in the recent past. And also we desperately need stability in our taxation and economic regime. Remember, if businesses have to invest, um, if foreigners have to invest, they need to see a stable policy regime in India. They can't see policy regime changing, tax changing. And we have been guilty of this in the last five, 10 years. In fact, one of the things I loved about the budget was that nothing changed on the taxation front. So, you know, doing nothing is a great thing. And in a country like ours, we desperately need stability so that people put in capital and are comfortable that if I put in capital for 10, 15 years, that is very, very important and a big risk. Right. The, sec the second big risk I feel is execution. I think India may ideas are easy, execution is damn tough. In fact, if I had to bet on an idea guy versus an execution guy in India, I'd bet on the execution guy. The budget is ultimately a statement of intent. For instance, the whole thing about asset monetization and disinvestment, it has to be executed. And by the way, executing these things is not easy. I mean, we've been hearing about Air India being sold for 15 years here. So privatization, these things are easier said than done in a country as complex in India. So I think execution is a big risk. Um, and I think finally, India is, there is no average of India, right? India is many different Indias within itself. And to get derailed by all the confusion that this de-averaged India poses, and India has to grow and carry everybody along. So I think that is very important because, you know, this is the challenge of a large, diverse democracy. 
Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. I think different sections of our demographics have different aspirations, right? I mean, uh, you know, since we spoke about uh, taxation, I mean, there's always this common middle class refrain uh, of, you know, we are the guys working really hard, we're the guys who are getting taxed the most and so on. Do you see this class of people, you know, uh, something to cheer about, uh, you know, in the next five or 10 years as such? Look, I think, you know, most middle class Indians are going to, and most salaried professionals, forget middle class, will always want a tax cut. Because as I said, the middle class Indian feels like he pays the entire proportion of tax from his salary and he can't even do anything about it. He can't even offset expenses in this state, right? Just because of the way it is. Uh, but you also have to realize in this year, the fact that your taxes didn't go up, when the government is saying, I'm going to spend all this money on your future growth, etc., etc., he has to fund it from somewhere. I mean, so this is not a year where I think you could have gone and cut taxes. Hopefully, I believe that as the tax net grows, as corporate taxes come down, perhaps there will be some relief for the middle class Indian. The middle class Indian, though, you have to look at it counterway, is also going to be the beneficiary of a lot of the things the government may be able to do. So if there is a boom in infrastructure, more engineers are going to be hired, more technicians are going to be hired, more designers are going to be hired. Hopefully their income will grow, they will become consumers. If more healthcare is done, more educational institutions are set up. So ultimately it all has to happen for the middle class. So hopefully the middle class will be a beneficiary of these policies too. Right. Uh, so we have the largest uh, number of young people in the world. Right. Um, so what would you advise a young person starting out today, let's say 2021, uh, what would you advise to them? Oh, so firstly, I think our young people are our biggest asset and could be your biggest liability. I mean, if the one thing the government has to constantly do is make sure that this demographic dividend doesn't become a nightmare. These people have to be productive. They need jobs. And I really think I'm a markets person. I think we multiplier or the PE multiple on the Indian youth is much lower than it needs to be. Um, and this is data. I mean, see what an Indian engineer makes versus a Chinese engineer or an American engineer. So I think the multiple of the Indian youth firstly needs to be integrated. And that's what I keep telling young people. You have to work to rebuild your own personal multiple. I mean, something I keep trying to do. I think find gainful employment, educate yourself well, and find a career trajectory that works for you. Get into a good job um, and find, spend your 20s really working hard and learning hard so that your 30s and 40s are a lot smoother. Uh, ultimately, I think India is a country where education and employment are really the answers to a lot of Right. Uh, any sort of policy interventions or enablement uh, that you see fit uh, for just to, you know, for, for that uh, same purpose? So I think we need to work hard on jobs. Um, one of the things that I didn't see too much in the budget was incentives, for instance, for startups. Um, you know, in terms of giving ESOPs, there's a lot of stuff you can do in terms of making the startup community more vibrant. I also think that the new era post-COVID is a work from home era. And that potentially can even change the life of a youth in tier three. Like if me as Edelweiss Mutual Fund, why do I need to hire a graphic designer sitting in Bombay? Why can't I hire a really talented guy sitting in tier three? And I wish we would find a way to leverage this work from home opportunity from a policy point of view. So I think that's those are a couple of things that the government can do. Also, I think there's a lot of talk about implementing NEP is a great policy, the education policy, because I think 
it all starts with education implementation of nep combined with practical training will go a long way i mean today 80% of your engineers are unemployable so you have to ask yourself now what are you educating these engineers for right um you know you're a role model for so many people especially for young women uh any specific advice to young men women who are you know starting out their careers at this point of time and are faced with multiple different choices and uh, you know how they should sort of embrace these opportunities and make the best of them ah you know i mean i could talk endlessly on this because i talk to a lot of young women i think a couple of things um one be really ambitious i think uh young indian women are i mean young indians are not taught to be ambitious but young indian women unfortunately are not taught to be ambitious they are always taught to hold back and i think dreaming big is very important um the second is don't give up um there are so many people who will tell you to give up when you get married to give up when you have kids to just give up for the sake of giving up um you know and there are circumstances that will make you give up because you're the only girl in a room or someone talks to you rudely and you feel like a, all that stuff's going to happen look a girl's journey is going to be tougher than a guy's journey just because she's in the minority just don't give up um one of my uh, mentors told me that you know if there are days in life when you're not feeling frustrated and you don't want to pull your hair out then you're not achieving high you're not aiming high enough in life and he said you know to get up dress up and just show up so i think that is the second thing i would say and the third thing i would say is never believe that being a woman is a liability i think indian women have all the skill sets whether it is leadership whether it is managing money whether it is understanding customers we learned this from our mothers and grandmothers we have all the skill sets for the world of tomorrow in fact i think we are far i mean the learning coming out of covid is that women led countries also handled covid better so if you can lead nations then you can definitely you know do the basics of life so never feel like your gender is a disadvantage assume it's an advantage and i guarantee you people will assume that right uh you know i've watched more than a couple of your videos where you've spoken about various anecdotes from your life uh, where you triumphed over the odds to kind of succeed and those were really inspirational uh, if you could maybe for our listeners recall one or two of these anecdotes uh, you know as we end this podcast oh god now i'm trying to because there's so many of these anecdotes um god i'm trying to think of you just caught me off guard let me think for <laughs> is there any particular one you wanted me to talk about i, I can't just think I actually liked uh, uh, the whole interview experience of yours because you know oh, I, I've seen that firsthand uh, with myself and a few of my uh, peers and and others as well. I mean that was uh, yeah that was def- definitely interesting. Uh, the uh, you know you're you're landing the McKinsey interview at the end of the day. The only problem is that that is in every video, so you might get bored <laughs> of that. That's the only problem. I'm trying to think for something that's interesting. So I, I'll tell you a recent anecdote that's that's perhaps less. um okay uh so i'll tell you a more recent anecdote that's perhaps not part of my videos and i think it kind of relates to your previous question uh one of my beliefs is that each individual is sort of very unique and very different and especially in india we are taught to be copycats of everyone else oh you want to go to iit do it this way oh you want to be successful do it this way we've got these guides right it's like you remember in school you used to have these problems like if five men took 
you know, five hours to screw four light bulbs. How long would it take 10 men to do that? I mean, you remember the century they didn't have women in that because women don't agree. But the fact is five men don't do the same thing identically, right? All of us are unique and different. Um, and I really believe all of us have to carve our own path and do what works for us. Um, that has been my story with Edelweiss Mutual Fund. So I've kind of been doing my uh, own thing my own way. And, you know, if you know me from social media, I do a lot of my own writing and I share anecdotes and life stories, etc. So last year, LinkedIn came to me and they said, we've rated you one of the top 20 voices in India. So I said, that's very sweet, etc., etc. Then they come to me and they say, we have rated you one of the top 10 voices in the world on finance and economy. And for that minute, I just felt like a frog because the only other Indian in that list was Raghu Ram Rajan. So I went to my husband and I said, uh, you know, I'm a fraud. I've just like, there, there's something wrong because he's Raghu Ram Rajan. This is finance and economy and this is me. Right? I'm writing, like if you see my LinkedIn post, I'm writing very simple stuff about my life and work and personal finance. And it's not like PhD stuff. And my husband told me something which I really like. That he's like, you know, you don't have to be like Ram Rajan. You are what you are because you are. And, you know, in just being yourself, you'll be recognized for that. So I've always, I grew up in Italy in part, and they always said that, you know, originals always have value. Fakes don't have value. And I think this was my proof that, you know, you have to be original. Right. Yeah, I think a lot of people will take heart uh, uh, to that because, I mean, if someone of your stature can, you know, feel that, I mean, you know, uh, I think all of us should have a little more faith and confidence in ourselves, uh, I suppose, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, I have many moments of feeling like a fraud. That, that, I mean, that, that week was hilarious. I was in a list with Raghu Ram Rajan and then I was ranked some 40 most powerful women in India next to Priyanka Chopra. And again, I told my... The sheer range, the range is amazing from Raghuram yeah. Rajan to Priyanka Chopra. Yeah. And I was feeling like such a fraud, I didn't tell anyone for a week. And then my mother was like, get over it and you know, celebrate what you have. There's Priyanka Chopra, there's Raghuram Rajan, <laughs> and you know, you still have to do your dishes and make your bed, but you're not so bad. <laughs> Right. So this has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, certainly many different things that, uh, you know, I will be reflecting upon. Thank you so much, uh, Radhika. This was a fascinating, fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Roshan. It was a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Bharat Vartha podcast. If you want to see more content like this, then don't forget to subscribe to our channel. We started Bharat Vartha to facilitate long-form discussions on politics, policy and culture. We don't necessarily endorse anything that was said in this episode. If you wish to offer us feedback, do reach out to us on social media. We are at Paratvartha on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You could also get in touch with us on our website, www.bharatvartha.in. The links are in the description below. Until next time, stay safe, take care, and jai.